Good morning, River Tree. Uh, I am John Busk. I am the student pastor here at the Cove campus, and uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I realize that if you do not have a middle school or high school student, you might have uh, zero idea who I am, but uh, I'm excited that I get to be here and us continue this study in Matthew. Uh, Ross and I were talking, and he's like, it's a good idea to kind of introduce yourself so you guys know a little bit about me. I actually grew up in Huntsville. My wife and I both did like 15 minutes from here. Uh, we love this city. We love being here at River Tree. I've been on staff for coming up on four years now. Um, but some of the most important things I like to talk about when I introduce myself and, you know, really the, the main thing is, one, I grew up in a large family. I love talking about my family. I'm one of six kids. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I love all of my siblings, but one of my greatest accomplishments in life, something I hold onto dearly and lord it over them, is that I am my mom's favorite child. And the thing about it is, I don't know why you guys are laughing, the thing about it is, no, every year, every year on my birthday, my mom writes, she makes a big Facebook post, super long. And it says, happy birthday to my favorite child. And she goes on and on. I mean, I get it. But she talks about it, uh, how great I am. And my favorite part about it is every year, people get super offended for my other siblings. Like, they're like, I can't believe you would say that. Don't you love them all the same? But the truth is, what they don't see, I don't know how they see one post, not the others, is she does it for all of us. She writes, makes posts for every kid. She talks about all of us being the favorite. And I know that's true, but as a 32-year-old man who is married, has my own kids, I love reading those words. I love seeing those words. Because here's the truth for us, church, that we all like being someone's favorite. We all like being respected. We all like being honored. We all like being recognized for the work that we've put in. We want to be picked first. We want to be told good job. And to connect with last week's sermon, last week's scripture, we like to get the reward that we feel like we earned, right? We like to, be, to, to get what we feel like we've worked hard for. It's the reason we look for approval in relationships. It's the reason that we work extra hours, or at least say we did at work, so someone pats us on the back, right? It's the reason for all the fishermen in the room uh, why when you take a picture, you're holding it way out here, right? You know who you are, for sure, right? Because we like to be told, wow, you're awesome, right? We like to know we're worthy. We like to know we're honored. We like to be rewarded for sacrifice and hard work and to get what we feel like we were owed. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're gonna be reading verses 20 through 28 this morning. It says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. 
And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see the mom, the mom of the sons of Zebedee, right? She's coming to Jesus. She kneels before him. She's in this posture of respect. She's probably like, I'm about to ask this huge question, right? She's probably thinking of some of my favorite kids, right? My two favorite sons, right? She's excited to ask this. She brings it to Jesus and asks if her sons can sit at the left and right hands of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, And there's a few contrasts with this whole scenario that I love. Because on one hand, the brothers aren't even confident enough to ask themselves, right? They send mom in. Uh, It reminds me of if you're a parent in the room or just you did this when you were a kid. You go to a restaurant and the server's going around taking everyone's order and it gets to the kid and all the kid can do is like look at mom and be like, I want the chicken fingers, please. You know, like, it's like just ask the server, right? They send mom to, do the, to ask the question. But on the same, at the same time, what a bold question to ask Jesus. What a bold thing to ask, right? To some degree, a question that really actually takes a ton of confidence. To ask Jesus if you could sit on his right hand and potentially get the response you were expecting takes an insane amount of confidence on your part in the things that you've done that you think have earned that spot. And also, a little comparison here, it was a question of selfish motives, right? They were wanting honor. They were wanting to be recognized. But it was still a question of a believer. They believed in what Jesus taught. They believed he would reign. They believed Jesus was the king, but they were expecting this, this conqueror, right? And they were wanting their reward for being seated next to him. So we see Jesus' response. He asks, are you able to drink from my cup? This idea of this cup, are you able to drink from my cup, it's an Old Testament phrase, and it was used to, exp- ex- sorry, it was used to explain retribution, wrath, suffering, and really, more specifically, the wrath of God that was coming. And the disciples would have at least like understood this, right? They, we, we see this in the Old Testament in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. And they would have understood this idea of suffering that was to come with this cup. But if you look back in the previous section, remember, Jesus had just spent time predicting his death. It was really the third time he did it and the disciples were there every time, right? He was including more details about it. He talks about the pain, the suffering. He talks about there's gonna be mocking, there's gonna be flogging, the crucifixion. It's a heavy thing to talk about, a very serious, heavy thing. And Jesus asks, can you do this? And with zero hesitation, it seems like no pause, James and John say, yeah, we got it, right? Yeah, we can do it. 
They still did not grasp why they were heading to Jerusalem. They still didn't grasp this whole, this whole story that we've been following of Jesus heading to the cross. They still had no idea what was really happening because their response, what it reveals to us, it shows us the focus of their hearts. It shows that they were hoping for a Jesus king so that they could get something in return. What they deemed was what they deserved. They were focused on what they assumed Jesus had come to do because they believed, but they were looking for this conquering king, the savior who was gonna save them from you know, the Roman empire, from their oppressed people, a conquering hero. And it's about as far from a servant or slave as Jesus describes as we can get. In some ways, I read this question and response between Jesus and the disciples, this dialogue, and in some ways, it's like, you just read it as like this passive kind of like, yeah, we got it, sure, like, you're gonna die, but you'll come back, we know, sure. But I also wonder if James and John maybe felt like they could take on the cup, what their understanding of what suffering was. And what I mean is maybe they felt like they already did. Maybe they felt like they already put in the work. They felt like they were already doing it. Because if you think about their lives, if you think about what we know about the disciples, they walked with Christ, right? They knew him deeply. In the church world, we love to talk about this idea of like when we follow Christ, we drop our nets, right? James and John literally dropped their nets. They were the ones that did it. They left their lives. They left their families. They ministered alongside Jesus. They weathered actual storms with him. Uh, they, you know, walked with him while he performed miracles. They sacrificed. They put in work. And they were in this place in this Christ movement, right? This, this whole time of Jesus moving towards the cross that had to have been super exciting. Right? A lot of times when I'm talking to my students and we're reading through stories of Jesus, like I ask a very obvious question, but if you saw someone raised from the dead, you would probably be pretty excited, right? Like they've been walking through and seeing miracle after miracle and heard teaching after teaching. It had to have been an exciting time for the disciples. And I think about, for me, in student ministry, my favorite week of every year is summer camp. Summer camp is the best. I even see heads nodding, right? Like it's some, if you've ever been to a student ministry summer camp, you know. We play games, we have competitions, we go whitewater rafting, we eat mediocre food, right? Uh, <laughs> but the best part about it, the real truth is we spend a week as a student ministry together, diving into God's word, worshiping Jesus. We're in small groups talking about it. And every year, the same phenomenon happens, right? It's the summer camp mountaintop experience where students come up to me afterwards and they're excited. They're pumped. They're like, we're gonna go home. We're gonna tell the whole city of Huntsville about Jesus. It's gonna be amazing, right? And I'm like, yes, go for it. But it happens because they've spent a week focused in. The disciples had spent a lot of time 
focused in with Jesus. And that really is what the hope of Jesus does for us. Right? It, it should get us excited. We want to be on Jesus' team. Right? We want to sit next to him and say we are part of it. But it seems like the disciples had a misplaced faith in what Jesus was actually there to do. And it makes me wonder, how would we respond to this question of can you take this cup? Can you drink from this cup? How do we respond to it? I mentioned my family. I said I love talking about them, right? Uh, I had the blessing of growing up with parents who love Jesus, right? They love Jesus. They shared it with us every chance they got. We grew up going to church as many times as we could. Uh, I grew up reading the Bible. You know, we watched Veggie Tales and listened to Adventures and Odyssey tapes. We, you know, served in children's ministry when we could. Uh, the summers where I felt like it, I made a huge sacrifice and helped with VBS. Uh, I even went on a few three-day mission trips, so pretty big Christian over here, right? Uh, and we kind of joke about it, but we really do start doing this thing where we just list all of the things that we've done for God, right? All of the things that we've done to earn our place. I tithe, I show up weekly, you know, I sacrifice time. And there's probably times in my own life where I would have said, yeah, Jesus, like not only can I take this cup, drink of this cup, like I'm doing it, right? I'm here. Look at all these things I've done, all this sacrifice I've made. There's times where we think, yeah, we could do it. So a question for us is, what do we hold up as worthy of earning us a spot on the right or left? What in our own lives do we hold up as worthy of earning us a spot on the right or the left? I read a quote in a commentary by Daniel Doriani. It said this, there is a danger for those who forfeit much can become impressed by their sacrifice and inquire about the reward that God now owes them, so they think in all their worthiness. Just like the disciples, our pride about our accomplishments, our pride about what we think we're owed, our pride, and this is the one that's hard for us, our pride about what we th we've deemed worthy, things that we've given up for God, right? Our pride about that gets in the way and can make us blind to the absolute truth of the glory of what Christ has done for us. And just like the parable of the wages we walked through last week, uh, it makes us miss how great the reward is that we actually get. It makes us miss the whole thing, just like the disciples. Just completely miss it, right? The reward that we actually get, not the one we deserve, but the one that Christ bought for us. So we have the disciples here, just like us, missing the point. And in this moment where you might expect Jesus to be annoyed, to kind of brush them off, right? He lets them in. He says, you will drink my cup. It's kind of an interesting response from him, right? He doesn't say, that's a stupid question, get out of my face. Jesus is full of grace. 
And he says, yes, you get to be part of this with me. But it is still his cup. Because only Christ can completely take the cup of wrath and retribution. Christ and Christ alone is able to satisfy the wrath of God. The punishment that was owed to us, but we could never take. And we see John and James, they do drink of it, right? They think they've served at that point. They don't even know what's to come. As far as we know, according to church history, all of the apostles were martyred or in the very least severely, severely persecuted because of their faith, because of Jesus Christ. But it's an interesting thing, in a weird way, an encouragement for us because we know we can still mess up. God still loves us. But even though Jesus said you will be part of this, James and John still missed it the first chance they had to step up, the second chance they had, the third chance they had, right? They still messed up. If you look ahead to Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes the brothers, takes James and John, he takes Peter. He's going to the garden to pray. He feels the weight, the weight of what is about to happen on the cross on him. Like you read about how much pressure there is, Jesus praying to God, and he looks at his disciples and he says, keep watch, because he's going to pray, and not once, but twice, do the two guys that said, yeah, we can take this cup, we're ready, fall asleep. Jesus has to come wake them up. They couldn't even stay awake in this moment. I like to look even further to the soldiers approaching when they're about to be arrested. James and John weren't the ones that jumped in front of Jesus to protect him and cut someone's ear off, right? That was Peter. All, all we know James and John did, you read in Matthew 26, it says all the disciples left him and fled. They were just gone. And I know I give James and John, we, we're focusing on them, we give them a hard time, but I don't want us to miss the other 10 disciples here, because we read in Matthew 20, 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We don't know this for certain, but the fact that Jesus calls them together, he sees this teaching moment for all of them, kind of shows us, and the fact that they all have asked these questions before, uh, that they were kind of bummed they got beat to the punch, right? They were like, wait, we can still ask that? That's still like something that's on the table for us to talk about? It was on all of their minds. I want us to see this moment that Jesus like kind of gives to the disciples here, right? And it's something that he, he holds out, he gives to us as well, where Jesus calls everyone to him. He brings everyone in. He doesn't condemn, he corrects. Think about it like a moment with a child where it's easy to just have a quick response, like quick scolding and move on with your life. But instead of doing that, he draws his disciples to him. He offers help and redirection and a chance to grow and learn because Christ knows what's going to come. He knows what's going to happen to the disciples He knows the good, he knows the bad, but he doesn't laugh in their faces, he doesn't scoff. Christ allows room for them to make this 
crazy request, this selfish question, this misplaced faith, he allows room for that to happen and then takes that and redirects it for a moment to bring them closer to him and his will. And he teaches them. He teaches them about greatness and being the best and receiving honor. He shows that the Gentiles, they rule in the same way. We would all expect anyone with the title of ruler to rule, right? From the top down. If you're a ruler, you're in charge of everyone. You're ruling. But Christ gives the formula for being great in the kingdom of God. He says, be a servant. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be the best, you want to be the first, be a slave. Servants' jobs is to serve right? But they get paid a wage, they move on. It's great. They're serving someone, but they move on. But Jesus is pointing out something here. Slaves own nothing, right? Slaves don't even own their freedom. They don't even own their own lives. Christ is the ultimate example of this. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' singular trajectory, his whole life, his singular focus, the one mission, was the cross. He was always focused on the cross, which was the most ultimate way to serve possible. And while the disciples thought that drinking from the cup was maybe another step to a reward, right? They thought, yeah, we've done the things. We've been with you, right? It was drinking from this cup was a step. We'll suffer like a little bit, right? We'll give up sometime. They thought that was a step to reward. Jesus takes the cup to be the payment as the ransom and the reward for many. So it leads us to this. If Jesus and the work on the cross, if he says that's the greatest, right? To be the greatest, be, you have to be a slave, right? Jesus is the ultimate example of that. How do we measure up to that? How do we measure up to that? And the beauty of the gospel is that we don't. We can't. We don't measure up, but Christ already did for us as the ransom. Right? He didn't just make a payment. He was the payment. And so we allow Christ's main focus of the cross to be our main focus in our lives. We allow that to be the lens that we're viewing the world and other people through. I think like the disciples, we can get to this place of listing all the great things that I've done for God. But have you allowed the space to realize the greatest things that Christ has done for you? Our service as Christians, isn't us adding rungs to a ladder to keep climbing higher and higher to earn our spot, to earn God's favor, to earn a seat at the right hand of God. Our service as Christians is an overflow of the work that's already been done through the cross. It's an outpouring of that, the cup that Jesus took. So I want you to think about how has Christ served you And a big question for us with that is how has what Christ has done for you, how has that shaped, 
How has Christ being a servant changed you? How has that affected your relationship with him? And how has that changed how you see and serve other people? Because I think in some ways we can, we can list, I just did it, like VBS, right, serving in children's ministry. We can list all of these things that we do. And on the other hand, we also can make service kind of this abstract thought. We, sometimes we just, maybe it's like we just don't like to think about it, right? We're like, yeah, serving's great. I do that sometimes. But I don't want to miss the chance to point out how Jesus served, not just on the cross, but like he served in very concrete ways with everyone he came in contact with. People were hungry, and guess what? He fed them. People were sick, and he healed them and cared for them. People were lonely, needed someone to just care about them. Jesus gave up his time and sat and talked with them. Jesus loved children. He loved sinners. He died. He rose again. So we should ask ourselves, how can we use what we've been given to serve others? And I know I get it, the student pastor's up on stage, transitioning into a time talking about how you all should serve, right? And you should, you should all serve in the church. Serving in the church is an absolutely great thing, you should all do it. But what Jesus is saying here isn't to give you like this moralistic list of things to, to follow through on, to check off the box. What Jesus, what Christ is calling us into by saying to be first, to be the absolute greatest, that you must be a slave. What he's calling us into is a life marked and defined by serving others because of the cross and all that we do. Paul sums this up great in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter two, three through eight. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just thank you for the space to, to be able to come into your presence, the space to learn from you. Like we see from the disciples, we see that, yeah, there are times where we can be completely selfish. There's times where we can feel like we're owed something. But Lord, I'm just so grateful that you allow us to come with those things and redirect us <laughs> to offer us that grace. pray for uh, just our church body. As we leave here, we reflect on the cross and the way that you've served us and the way that, uh, that you ultimately, you laid down your life. You gave your life as a ransom for many. Lord, that how, how that changes us, how we view other people. 
how we view our service to them and to you. Lord, I pray that we can just continue to live that out, to direct others towards you. And always, always focus on the cross. Pray this in your name. Amen.